Good morning. The reading for today is from Isaiah chapter 41, verses 21 to 29. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come. From the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here they are, and I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. All right, thanks, Nick. Good morning, Arcadia. Good to see you. If you're new, I'm glad you're here. uh, My name is Frank. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, You should turn in your Bibles to Isaiah 41. That's where we'll be. Uh, If you... um, don't have a Bible, we have Bibles in the back, or this may shock you, there's one on your phone too, (laughs) just look in the phone, you can find one there as well. Uh, I do this um, every year, so I got to do it again this year, it's just sort of a tradition. Um, So uh, I want, not a show of hands, I want to hear it for the Philadelphia Eagles. about right. Uh, let's, let's hear it for the Kansas City Chiefs. Uh, let's, let's hear it for I don't care. Okay, let's la- last one. Chicken wings. That's where I am. Okay. Uh, but and, gosh, you know, I got myself into this mess a few years ago when the Suns were in the finals, and so I'm just going to keep going with it. Um, Man, everybody's talking about this trade, you know? The Suns acquired Kevin Durant. They they gave away 17 players, 34 first-round draft picks, $4.7 billion, and three 10-speed bikes to get him. And I keep hearing from people about how this is revolutionary, this is going to change the franchise. And they're right, only not in the way they think. Um, they've mortgaged their... This, this solidifies the curse, I'm just telling you. I love Kevin Durant, but this solidifies the curse. Okay, When was the last time he even played in a game? I, he's injured now. And I hear he's going to be well in 2026. I mean, come on. You know, so I, I just, I, I, I got to tell you that this is, yeah, it's not good. That, that trade has a stink of desperation on it. 
Okay, I know somebody's going to forward this YouTube video to the new owner of the Suns, and he's not going to care, so that's, that's really good. Um, now to uh, things that m- God might consider a little more important. Let's talk about Isaiah. Uh, we're in the second week of a nine-week series looking at Isaiah, Old Testament prophet. Some would say the Old Testament prophet. Uh, chapters 40 through 55, these 16 chapters are all one literary unit It's one long poem that's made up of many shorter poems. And we're looking at a big chunk today, as we are with pretty much every other week in this series. You have to go through 16 chapters of Old Testament uh, prophetic poetry. It's going to be big chunks every single week. So two chapters today, 41 and 42. And I'm going to read as much of it as I can, because simply reading God's word is edifying, even without the commentary. Sometimes you would say, especially without the commentary, no joke, even that. Um, But that means we will have to make some decisions about what we're going to go deep on, and I pray that we have decided well, not only this week, but every week. Last week, we talked about chapter 40, and we spent some time in the context of Isaiah 40 through 65, uh, 55, and trying to introduce it, trying to help people understand the history around it. And then we dove into chapter 40, the first chapter. If you weren't here last week, we would encourage you to go onto our website and listen to last week's message or watch it on our YouTube channel. It's, it's there as well recorded so that you can catch up with all that context stuff. Uh, but essentially what happens in, in chapter 40 is that uh, God introduces this understanding that Uh, God's people, Israel, have been rebelling and rebelling and rebelling, and he's been trying for centuries to get their attention, but they continue to turn to idols, to false gods, to worship other things other than the one true God. And he's been patient literally for hundreds and hundreds of years. And now he's saying, look, we've already brought in the Assyrians in 722 B.C. and uh, took over the northern kingdom, left the southern kingdom uh, untouched. But now the southern kingdom is going to have to be uh, disciplined as well. And uh, in chapter 39 of Isaiah, uh, the prediction is is that you are going to go into exile uh, in Babylon, 700 miles to the east. But chapters 40 through 55... Uh, actually proclaim the restoration of God's people, Israel, after they go into this Babylonian exile for 70 years. So uh, while there is uh, quite a bit of confrontation and rebuke in chapters 40 through 55, ultimately chapters 40 through 55 are good news of God's comfort and hope that are to come in the wake of the Babylonian exile. And all of these chapters ultimately, and keep building to the fact that they are going to point to the coming Messiah, Jesus, who happens to come about 700 years after Isaiah uh, wrote this. But these chapters really do point to what is known as the suffering servant, but then is manifested and born into this world as Jesus um, about 700 years later. So uh, 41 through 42 today, uh, some key themes for today in 41 and 42. Actually, it's just one theme, but I'll make several uh, comments about it. Here's the theme uh, today. God is going to compare himself to these idols that Israel, God's people, have been worshiping. He's going to compare himself to these false gods. 
He's going to chastise these false gods, these idols, and he's going to speak words of comfort to those who stay faithful to the one true God. And so you may be wondering, well, idols and false gods, I don't understand. What, what are some modern-day idols? Well, there's, there's many, plenty. Take your pick. There's politics and political ideology. We, uh, it's amazing how many times I'll get together with people and we, they don't want to talk about Jesus. They want to talk about uh, Trump or Biden or Hillary or whatever and, 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 uh, and, and just everything surrounding that. So there's politics, there's power, uh, people who are only interested in power and, and sort of worship at the altar of power. There's status. That's been, become a big one in the last uh, 20 years because of digital communication, the internet, and, and social media. Um, certainly there's, there's wealth and how we handle wealth and, and resources, uh, vocation, education, all of those things. Here you go. Here are some pretty difficult idols to get past in today's world as well. Fox News, CNN, MSNBC. Those have become idols in our world. And the list could go on and on and on. And that brings up this question already, even in the midst of what's the theme for 41 and 42, here's a point of application for today. And I want to ask us today, by whom are you being discipled? Who is discipling you? Is it Sean Hannity? Is it Don Lemon? Is it Rachel Maddow? Are you more excited to listen to them than you are to open up the Bible and read God's Word? Are you more excited about them than to uh, listen to what Jesus has to say? Are you spending an hour and a half every day on cable news network and, and networks and Sunday on Scripture? And I, and I, I know it's, it, that's a good dose of Protestant guilt there for you, but that's not the point. The point is to get you to really think about that because that will shape your worldview. That will shape how you interact with this world. And that really ultimately results in foolishness. God is the one who gives us wisdom. Who are you being discipled by? Are you being discipled by uh, the politicians, are you being discipled by people at your work? Are you being discipled by people who want nothing to do with the one true God, but who want to form and conform you? That's an important question to answer. Anyway, here's the Israelites' foolish answer to God confronting them about their idols, about their false gods. Here's their foolish answer. Their foolish answer for their idols and their false gods not working and not being as good as the Lord, is to go and find more idols and better idols that will work better than the current ones they have rather than turning to God. It's exactly the same problem we have. If we could just get the right people into office, if we could just get the right people running this company, if I were running this company, if, we could just, if I just had more of this and less of that, it, it, it's, it's, here you go, on social media, uh, my, if, my, if I had more platforms and more followers, then I would be fulfilled and all my problems would be solved. It's the same idea. It's just more of what isn't working. That was their idea. That's our idea today. Anna Lemke says it this way. More dopamine. That'll solve all my problems. That's a brain reference. You have to read the book to, if you're not sure about that. But that's a problem. And so in these first 20 verses of 41... Again, the Lord is reminding his people just who he is 
And that they have nothing to fear because they are his chosen people. Even though they're going to go into exile, they're going to have to suffer this discipline. He wants to remind them that even there, he's with them and he goes before them whenever they encounter their enemies. And there are even going to be significant victories while they are in exile. Read the books of Daniel and Ezekiel and and you will see that as, as well. So let's start by reading a chunk of verse 41 Uh, Verses 1 through 4 and 8 through 12. God says, listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his bow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first, and with the last, I am he. But you, O Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. If I have chosen you and not cast you off, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded, Those who strive against you shall be nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not, I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. I will deal with that word worm. You men of Israel, I am one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make you a threshing sledge, new heart, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord. In the Holy One of Israel you shall glory." When the poor and needy seek water, there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst. I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness of uh, the cedar and the acacia and the myrtle and the olive, and I will set in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider consider and understand together, that the hand of the Lord has done this, the Holy One of Israel has created it. So coastlands, that, that one of the first words there, what does it mean, coastlands? Again, that's a rhetorical way, or it's ancient Hebrew vernacular, meaning the ends of the earth. Whenever you see in the Old Testament God referring to the coastlands, what he's talking about is is really everybody, everywhere, all peoples, all nations. So this message is not just for his own people, but he's declaring it also to everyone who might pay attention. But then specifically in verse 14, he calls his people Jacob, or Israel, same name, he calls them a worm. Why is God calling his people a worm? Have you ever called anybody a worm and it went well? 
Okay, it just, it just sounds kind of insulting, okay? But again, here it is. It's a metaphor. Worms are small and lowly. God reminds his people and all people who they are without him. In and of themselves, the Israelites had no power or glory, just like despite all of our worldly accomplishments, you and me. We are small and lowly without God. The Israelites would be trampled by the other nations as easily as people would trample a worm. But because God is with them, he promises deliverance to his people. He promises protection from his enemies and triumph in the end, even as they are in exile. He keeps saying this exile isn't the end of the story. There's more to come. And notice again in these verses God's claim to absolute sovereignty and power and his protection and provision for his people. Now again, I'll say, we struggle with that idea that God is the great protector and provider. And the reason is because we want protection and provision when we want it, how we want it, and the way we want it. And the problem is, is that God is in charge of that. And I know in my own life, as I look back on my life, there were times when I was sure God was not providing for me But then when I look back on it later, I realize he was actually protecting me in that moment that I thought he wasn't providing. And there were other times when in those moments I thought he wasn't protecting me, he was actually providing for me in some way. So even, even then, we don't quite know what God is doing, but that's why it's called faith. That's why we are called to trust God. It's, it's not that we're going to prove this scientifically. We just know that God is going to take care of his people. And it just reminds me of one of the six core values of Redemption Church, and that is that we have nothing to prove and no one to impress. And the reason is because it's about pointing everybody to Jesus and having faith in him. Nothing to prove and no one to impress. And then finally in verse 19, I just found it interesting. There's all this emphasis on trees. He says he's going to put all these trees in the the land. And that word translated put or set in literally means to plant. He's going to plant all these trees. And again, this is a rhetorical device. It's a metaphor. All of these trees are, are trees of great character, stature, and strength. And so God is saying that he will restore his people to a lofty place of strength. This is further assurance of the message that he started with in, verse, in chapter 40 last week. So then moving on to the last uh, nine verses of chapter 41, you'll notice if you have an ESV translation that the uh, ESV editors have titled this section The Futility of Idols, or you could call it The Ineffectuality of False Gods. And here's what God says. Set forth your case, says the Lord. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we might know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good and do har- or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing, An abomination is he who chooses you. I stirred up one from the north, and he has come from the rising of the sun, and he shall call upon my name. He shall trample on the rulers as on mortar, as the potter treads clay. Who declared it from the beginning that we might know, and beforehand that we might say, he is right? There was none who declared it, none who proclaimed, none who heard your words. I was the first to say to Zion, behold, here, we, here they are, and I give, them, I give to Jerusalem a herald of good news. But when I look, there is no one. 
Among these there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives, no, gives an answer. Behold, they are all a delusion, their works are nothing, their metal images are empty wind. Idols, false gods, have nothing to say and nowhere to go. They're, they're mute. That's how, God, that's how Paul describes them in the New Testament. You're mute idols. They can't say anything to you. They can't uh, communicate to you. Now, these nine verses, here's one way, I think a helpful way, but a sobering way, a sobering way to understand these nine verses. So just imagine our whole life, God has tried to help us, tried to counsel us, uh, tried to get our attention. Uh, He's tried to give us wisdom, and we've just rejected and rejected and rejected because we're sure we had a better way. We were smarter. We were wiser. Our wisdom is better than God's wisdom. And so the things that you and I count on and trusted instead of God, well, we liked them better than God because we thought these idols, these false gods, were serving us somehow. And they never talk back to us, so we really are actually in control of these idols. In actuality, you're serving these idols. We're the ones submitting to them. At any rate, here's what's happening in this passage. Now what's happening is uh, you and I and all of our idols, all of our false gods, we're standing before God in a courtroom. This scene is a trial, and God is the presiding judge, so we're standing before him with our idols. We're standing there with, I was going to say I, we're standing there with Sean Hannity. We're standing there with Don Lemon or Rachel Maddow. We're standing there with our, with our financial portfolio. We're standing there with our social media platforms saying, I got more followers than you, God. We're standing there with all of these things that we believe are better and more fulfilling than God, whatever it might be. And he, God, the presiding judge, is asking you and your idols to explain how these idols and us are so much better and wiser and powerful than he is. So God's sitting there saying, come on, present your case, present your argument to me, the Almighty. Present your case as to how all of this is better than I am. I'm all ears. I'm willing to listen to your case. And now you must acknowledge the fact that God is really God and that you and all these other things that you put your faith and hope and trust in don't measure up. I can't imagine anything more sobering than that. But that day comes for all of us. You look at those last two verses, 28 and 29, God's final verdict. Nothing to say. That's when reality hits, and it hits really hard. Because nothing can compare to the Lord. Everyone is silent. Everything is silent. You know, um, even the game of life and Monopoly, 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 uh, even these games recognize that at the end there comes this day of reckoning, Right? Okay? In Scripture, it's known as the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. When Jesus comes again. I, I know, and I hear, I, hear, I hear people now, oh, Frank, you're using fear and fire and brimstone to preach the gospel. That's just so two centuries ago. Actually, it's 28 centuries ago. And it's still true. It's, it's God saying these things to his people, still trying to get their attention saying, this is coming, and I've been doing this for centuries now, and warning you for centuries, and there's even stuff in my law that I gave you a thousand years ago that prophesies that this is what will happen if you turn away from me and turn to these idols. But in the midst of this, understand, there is also good news. 
God confronts and he comforts. And here's the good news for us. When you and I come to Jesus, when you and I accept and embrace Jesus as our Lord and Savior, when this day comes, this day of reckoning, this day of the Lord, it's a really short trial and you and I don't have to say anything. We don't have to say anything. And the trial goes by like that. Okay? Because if we're in Christ, when we stand before God, he doesn't see us in our sin and in our unworthiness. In fact, who he sees is Jesus, because we are in him. He looks at Jesus, and he just says, next. Bring the next bunch in. And here's the thing. Here's what's really hard. We're living in the darkness of today right now. And we look forward to that day when, we can, when God just looks and says, you're in, next. Bring the next bunch in. What we need to understand that even now, even in the midst of of us fighting in this darkness and still succumbing to this darkness day in and day out and having to deal with it, even now God still sees us that way. He looks at us and he sees Jesus. And it's his way today in the Gospels and in the New Testament letters saying, I know it's hard, but come on. Jesus is with you. Come on. You are being conformed to the image of God. Paul says in the book of Romans. He doesn't say you will be eventually. He's saying you are being. You are in the process. And that's good news for us today. He sees Jesus. And God the Father simply says, cool, next. That's what the cross and resurrection does for us. Those of us who have given our lives to Jesus. And that's what God does at the beginning of chapter 42. He introduces his servant. He finally makes a more specific but still a little bit muddy reference to his Savior. He starts by saying, behold, that word again in the Old Testament, it means look intently. Don't just give a passing glance, but study, look intently. See past the surface at my servant. And this is always our answer to our sin and rebellion and our idolatry is that Jesus is here and he's with us. And he says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And the coastlands wait for his law. So this is the Messiah, God's Savior, who will come. The Jews understood this and knew it. They knew that this was the suffering servant, the Messiah who was to come. They just didn't know that it would be another seven centuries before it was Jesus. But Matthew knew it. In the Gospels, we see that Matthew uh, knows this. Listen to what Matthew writes in his Gospel in chapter 12, right after Jesus heals a man with a withered hand, and that really aggravates the professional religious people, and they decide they're going to go after Jesus. And so this is what happens in the wake of that. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant, whom I have chosen, my beloved, with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. 
A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and, his na- and, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. So again, Jesus is not just for his people, God's people, but for all people, all nations, the coastlands, once again. And notice there, I kept emphasizing it, the word for justice, or even can be translated judgment, it's used three times in these four verses in Isaiah 42. In other words, God's suffering servant, the Messiah, is going to set things straight. He'll make things right. I mean, how many of us right now, I mean, I'm one of them, I just look around and, and you lament the world that we live in and, and the, the trouble that this world is in constantly. And it seems like every time we go to try to fix it, we try to fix it, we just seem to make it worse. And we, and we just keep thinking, well, we just didn't do enough of what we thought would fix it. We just need to do more. And we continue on this goofy cycle of doing this thing. But Jesus says, listen, it's not that you should give up. But you need to reorient how you're thinking and remember that I am coming. Do what you're called to do, but remember, ultimately, I'm the only one who's going to be able to set this straight, and it's going to be when I come again. So have faith and understand that's where our hope lies. And He's already set our eternity in place through the cross and resurrection. We have to live in this milieu now. Yes, that's true. But our eternity is set in place, and, and, and he says, because of that, I can handle the rest of this. So this paragraph tells us that, the God, that God the Father delights in Jesus, tells us that Jesus is filled with the Holy Spirit, and it tells us that, that, that though appearing weak and fragile, Jesus has all power to set things right. We said last week that uh, Jesus is one of the six most important words in Isaiah 40 through 55, yet the proper name Jesus is never used. But these verses just keep pointing to him. Here's uh, verses 5 through 9 in chapter 42. Thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring the prisoners out the prisoners from the dungeon and the prison from the prison, those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name, my glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I will tell you of them. At the end of the book of Job in the Old Testament, after all that Job has been through, God restores Job, just like he will restore the Israelites from their exile in Babylon. But towards the end of that book, you know, Job, after he's restored, he goes to God and he, he says, Hey, can I, can I ask you? I'd like to know why all this had to happen to me. And, and God answers Job by saying, essentially, Who are you, a mere human being, a human being with faults and sin, to ask me, the creator God of this universe, who are you to ask me for an explanation? And then goes, God goes on for several chapters explaining to Job how God is God, not Job. And, and at the end, Job's kind of like, okay, cool, you got this, I got it, okay. The first couple of verses that we read here, 5 and 6, are very similar to that. But then God says, I'm going to bring you out of this exile, I will liberate you from your bondage, and... You will be a light to the nations, a light on my behalf, which is what I've been asking you to do for centuries, but you're going to be a light to the nations. 
that I am the God Almighty, the Lord, just as Jesus will be a light to the nations. I'm going to pull you out of this exile. And so yet again, God's people are confronted in their idolatry and yet comforted in his covenant. We need to remember that God both confronts and comforts. He is not just a God of confrontation. He's not just a God of comfort. He is both. He confronts us so we understand how we need his comfort. The next eight verses, 10 through 17, God at first declares that many peoples and nations, when they see the restoration of Israel, they will sing praises to God. Again, he says this throughout these 16 chapters. He keeps saying, you just watch how the other nations react um, when I pull you out of this exile. They're going to say, there's no other way but God who, who is able to do this. Only God can sustain this. Even Nebuchadnezzar, eventually, the king of Babylon, eventually bows uh, to God. But then in verse 14, God reminds Israel and all the nations of his patience with, this, with sin. For a long time, God, quote, held his peace and he restrained himself. But then in verses 15 through 17, he proclaims again that he is the savior of those who come to faith, but that he is also the judge of those who continue in their sin and idolatry. So as we wrap up these two chapters... It's Isaiah again warning the Israelites of their rebellion against God and the consequences of their idolatry. So 18 through 25, God says, Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger, whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear The Lord was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to uh, to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter? And Israel to the plunderers. Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned? In whose ways they would would not walk? And whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. Um, There's a couple of levels here that go on, and you see it again in, in a lot of verse chapters 41 and 42, there's a couple of levels where Isaiah is speaking. Isaiah uh, historically lived through the Assyrian uh, conquering of the northern kingdom in, in 722 BC. That was God's judgment on the northern kingdom of Israel. And it was a warning to the southern kingdom. Uh, the, the Assyrians were going to come in and take the southern kingdom too, but God turned them back after, after they took the northern kingdom. So it was yet another warning to the southern kingdom. And, and Isaiah speaks of that all the time, this, these armies that come from the north. There's already been this punishment, this judgment, this discipline. And now God is warning of the next one. He's going to send the Babylonians in. They're going to come from the, from the east. So he's warning of that. And then there's this third layer where God, where, where God continues to tell Isaiah to proclaim the suffering servant, the Messiah who is to come. And that's going to crescendo in chapters 52 and 53. So as you read this, you see Assyrians, discipline. And then a hundred years later, Babylonians, discipline. 
And then 70 years later, restoration. And then 600 years later, the suffering servant comes. Isaiah is seeing all of this through his lens as God is talking to him. In these verses here that we just read, the Israelites are stubborn in their sin, rebellion, and idolatry. They continue to be. And Isaiah is reminding his people of how plain God made it to them that he is God. He's a God of power and grace and compassion and love, but he's also a God of justice, and he does not like sin. And God showed them all that they needed to see. I mean, he, again, the, the, the reminder that he gave them his law, the Ten Commandments, back in the story of Exodus. He brought them out of their slavery in Egypt. He reminds them of that. He gave them the promised land. And he went before them into the promised land so that they could conquer the promised land without hardly losing a battle or a man. But he says, the exile is going to come because you still won't listen to me. And even though they'll be redeemed because God is a God of his covenant, there's going to be a price to pay for this idolatry and rebellion. And remember, Jesus also warns us in the gospel about those who hear the message and yet turn away as if they cannot hear it. Those who see the miracles and yet are unrepentant in their sin. When I, when I think about the number of people who saw the miracles of Jesus, I cannot help it. My mind always goes there. John chapter 11, Lazarus is dead. He's in the tomb four days. He's Texas dead. He's dead, okay? And Jesus raises him to life. Some people believed. Why didn't all of them? Some people saw that miracle and just got madder and madder at Jesus. Their eyes saw it and their ears heard it, but they did not comprehend it the way they needed to. That's what happens. So it's interesting. As I read and studied chapters 41 and 42, I was reminded of a book I read early last year, early in 2022. And this is what we're going to close with. Um, There's this guy named Richard Rohr. Some of you maybe have heard of him. He's a Catholic mystic and philosopher. And honestly, I don't agree with everything that Rohr teaches and writes, but but what I'm about to present from Rohr is really helpful. As uh, Kenny Banya of Seinfeld fame would say, this is gold, Jerry, gold. So listen up. Uh, Rohr claims there are five essential truths about life. Here they are. Life is hard. Can I get an amen? Yeah, okay. You are not that important. Your life is not about you. You are not in control. And, of course, my favorite, you are going to die. <laughs> I can't remember who said it, but they said that the statistics on death are really impressive. One out of one person dies. Okay. Then Rohr says, here's what the world claims. These are the world's five essential truths. You deserve an easy life. You are very important. You are the center of all things. Everything is about you and for you. You are the master of your destiny and you will change the world. And you can live forever. So in the midst of this book, uh, the author, a guy named John Tyson, he's a pastor and author, he said, you know, for the Christian... What we need to look at is we need to look at both of those lists, but especially that second list. And for the Christian, the process is actually moving from those second five things I just read, the the world's five essential truths, and moving towards a gospel-centered understanding of your existence and the world. And here are these movements. Moving from ease to difficulty. 
He says, boys embrace ease, men embrace difficulty. Now, I just want you to know that this is true for women as well, but I appreciate his emphasis here on the men because honestly, I think, I th- I, I'm not going to point at women and say they're the problem. I'm going to point at us and say, you know, we need to get our act together. Occasionally, we need to have people get into our faith. Yes, even you, Eric. We need to, <laughs> we need to get, I'm kidding. We need, we, need to get, we need to get in our own faith. Uh, it's kind of a weird analogy, but I think it works. Um, I, I've been a distance runner running long distances, I, and I actually like it. And people say, do you even like doing it? Yes, I like it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't like it, okay? Anyway, I like to run. Um, but one of the things I've discovered over the years, and I've talked to other runners about this as well, uh, Sherry, you probably know this, even uh, marathon runners, distance runners, we figured out how we can do our workout in the laziest, least effort-producing uh, p- way possible, okay? And, and so about five years ago, um, with the help of my oldest daughter, uh, Shelby, I decided to join Orange Theory, okay? So... I go in, I, get, I got the, the bare minimum um, uh, membership. I go once a week. But here's what I found. I, I, once a week, I need to pay somebody once a week to yell at me, to work harder, to confront me in my workout sloth, okay? We need people like Tyson to get up and say, listen, you're going to have to figure this out. This is a problem, so I appreciate that. So he says, unbelievers and weak men embrace entitlement, but believers embrace duty. Believers embrace duty. Here's the second one. Moving from self to, self to others. Unbelievers are about themselves, but followers of Christ are about others. Moving from the whole to a part. Christians realize that they are part of a greater story. He adds the word only. You're only a part of a greater story. Unbelievers are sure that they are the story. Christians embrace the gospel reality of moving from a desire to control to a willingness to surrender. Those who don't know Jesus believe that they are in control. And the believer's hope lies in moving from the temporal to the eternal. Those who don't know Jesus believe this world is all there is and behave accordingly. Now, I take us through this in order to help us to see that the gospel of Jesus is not only true, but it's also prophetic, future-looking, and it's pragmatic. It's good for us today as well. The gospel is more than 2,000 years old, but it speaks to us today as if it were made for today. And furthermore, as Isaiah and the Lord speaks to the Israelites 2,700 years ago, we also see that what he says to them 2,700 years ago is applicable today, as applicable as it was then. So I just say, this is good stuff. Don't miss it. Don't allow yourself to get distracted from this and and be blind to the truth of God and his son, Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and its truth, and we thank you that um, this, this word of yours and this history of who you are has been assembled for us, that we might know you today. And that we can have assurance and comfort and hope in who you are and what Christ has done for us today. Thank you for that. So God, I just pray that we would uh, take this and apply it to our lives. And as we, as we come to our time of reflection and, and response, uh, I just want to uh, lift up to you 
the GCU choir and, and um, just how, how much it means to us that they would come and they would serve us, they would lead us in our worship today and they would bless us. And so I just lift them up to you and I ask you to bless them. Bless, ask that you would show them favor as well. And God, that the rest of this service would honor and glorify you and we ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So it is time for our uh, reflection and response and if our communion servers would please come forward. Again, on that night that uh, Jesus was betrayed, he and his disciples are eating their Passover dinner and at one point he picks up the bread and he gives thanks and then he breaks the bread and he says, this is my body and it's given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then he picks up, after they had eaten the bread, he picks up the cup of wine and he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. It's my blood that's being poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul reminds us that when we eat this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And so as we do that, we get to celebrate uh, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead and he is with us even now and he's in us even now. So come... Uh, certainly reverently, but also come in, in a spirit of celebration that we have, uh, we have this salvation. Uh, there will also be people standing in the wings uh, ready to pray with you or answer any questions if you have any. Um, and so let's go ahead and do that right now.
choir for leading us this morning. Thank you. Thank you all. 
Our benediction for today comes from Jesus' great sermon, where in Matthew 6, he starts by, by asking us to not be anxious about the things in our life, what tomorrow brings, what we'll wear, what we'll eat. That's tomorrow's trouble. What he says is this towards the end. But seek first, and this is our call for us this week, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and then all these things will be added to you. So go, church, in the peace that knowing that brings and live all of life all for Jesus. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.